This week's TribCast is sponsored by Donate to the Stand with Austin Fund to support nonprofits assisting individuals and small businesses most negatively impacted by the cancellation of South by Southwest. Donate at austincf.org slash stand-with-austin. And Entergy Corporation powers life by helping create healthy, vibrant communities and is inducted in Corporate Citizenship Hall of Fame by the U.S. Chamber Foundation. More at entergynewsroom.com. Hello, and welcome to the March 18th edition of the Texas Tribune TribCast. This is Alexa Uda. We're doing something a bit different this week in light of the moment we're in. The roundtable discussion and banter that's typical of the TribCast didn't feel like it adequately aligned with the fear and anxiety that many are living with amid the coronavirus pandemic. The Tribune is also practicing social distancing, so all of our reporters are working remotely for the time being. What we're going to do instead is one-on-one conversations with some of the Tribune reporters who have been bringing you the news on the state of coronavirus in Texas. This week, I'll be joined by Health and Human Services reporter Edgar Walters and public education reporter Aliyah Swaby. Edgar, we're going to talk about hospital capacity and the front line of Texas's healthcare workforce. But can you first sort of give us an update on the state of coronavirus in Texas? Um, our conversation on last week's TripCast feels like it happened ages ago. It really does, doesn't it? Um, in the week since, um, well, the, I think one piece of big news is we had our first confirmed death related to COVID-19. Um, it was a man in Matagorda County in his late 90s. Um, so just in case, you know, anybody forgot that we're talking about, you know, potentially fatal disease, um, that, you know, that's what we're looking at. The number of cases um, has steadily climbed. I don't know the exact figure, um, but it's above 75 um, at least. And again, those are only cases that we know about. Um Testing capacity in Texas remains limited, although since we last spoke, um, more private labs have come online and uh, the latest figures I've seen actually had more than a thousand Texans being tested at this point, which is, you know, it's exponential growth from what we were seeing last week, but still in the aggregate, it's a small number. So I'm hesitant to say, you know, how many cases there actually are in Texas. I think the more honest answer is we just don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for those reasons, I think we're seeing, um, you know, more acceleration from local governments um, to basically have uh, greater restrictions imposed on people trying to cut back on travel, trying to cut back on people going to restaurants, um, you know, being in large groups whatsoever. The message is really stay home as much as you can and isolate because if we don't do that, we could potentially have too many sick people all at once. And that would be really bad news for the healthcare system's ability to actually respond. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a finite number of people we can care for all at once. Sure. Well, so so before we get to more specifics on the healthcare system, I mean, we have gone from a handful of cases last week to sort of widespread closures of school districts, restaurants, public places, especially in some of the state's biggest sort of metropolitan areas. Um, you know, from a testing and sort of closure standpoint, 
how does Texas, the Texas response to this compare or fare against the responses of other states, particularly some of the other larger states as well? Sure. Well, there's a couple ways to answer that question. Um, the first being, we have done, according to the latest data we have, we have done far fewer tests of patients to see if they have COVID-19 in Texas um, than many of the larger states. Now, um, you might say it's not fair to compare us to a state like California because on the West Coast, they've been having, you know, they've, they've known that they've had uh, community transmission of the new coronavirus for longer. And, and so they expect to have more sick people. But just in terms of the raw numbers, um, our testing numbers are lagging behind. Um, and there are a lot of people who are worried about that. There are hospital workers who are worried about that because if it's hard to get tested, it's hard to know how to prioritize patients. You know, if you're, you're sort of, somebody comes into your emergency department waiting room and if they have a fever and, you know, a cough, maybe you have to treat them like they are a COVID-19 patient, even if you don't actually know it. Um, so that remains a challenge. Um, on the other hand, uh, our case, our, the total number of known cases looks lower in Texas, but again, it's hard to really say for sure that that is, necessarily a good thing given the limited testing capacity. It is also possible that we just don't have a good grip on the extent to which there has been a community transmission of this disease in Texas. Um, and then the other kind of response or the way that Texas stands out from some other states is um, the extent to which uh, these um, control orders and, and other kind of restrictions placed on people's movement and on their ga you know, social gatherings and things like that is that it's been less top down in Texas. That tends to be how we govern in this state, right? Like, uh, you know, a very sort of laissez-faire approach to government. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, we had a story um, from uh, Kia Collier and Cassie Pollock that compared Texas response to other states and basically found that, um, you know, the governor has said, essentially, a lot of these decisions, I want to be local decisions because we're such a large state and a diverse state that, you know, if a school district decides it needs to close, it can make that decision. If a city decides that it needs to, you know, ban people from eating at restaurants and only allowing takeout, that can be the city's decision. Um, and, you know, time will tell uh, to see whether that's a wise strategy or not. Um, I think there's a lot of conflicting opinions about whether the governor could be you know, more heavy handed or whether it's a good thing to let, uh, you know, the local governments kind of play it by ear. Yeah. I mean, cause you think about in the, you know, the DFW region alone, where so many individuals maybe work in a different County than the one that they live in and they might be seeing restrictions in the County that they work in, but not the one that they live in. I mean, obviously we have been seeing some sort of regional coordination on this, uh, to a somewhat, but with that, with it being sort of a county by county or even city by city, there seem to be sort of gaps that will naturally emerge like that. If you're talking about, you know, Dallas County versus Collin County and, and any of the other neighboring suburban counties there. Sure. I mean, I think the best way to put it is what it currently looks like in Texas is, you know, a patchwork system. That's how we've described it. That's how the experts have described it. Um, that's not to say that as the number of cases uh, ramp up in Texas that, the, you know, ultimately the state, you know, can supersede local decisions. So if one day Abbott um, says, actually, we're going to be closing public schools 
you know, statewide for the rest of the school year. That's, that's still a tool that's available to him. But as of right now, uh, yeah, the system is patchwork. I mean, I, as a reporter, I'm having trouble distinguishing, okay, wait, so in Austin, are restaurants open or closed? Um, or is that Houston where they close them? You know, it's just things are changing so rapidly and so differently depending on where you live. Uh, it's a patchwork system for sure. Yeah. So, you know, the, the first part of this was kind of the initial cases. Is there testing available? Where is testing available? As more of that has come online, we've turned a bit more toward capacity um, as healthcare workers kind of prepare for really the possibility of widespread infection. Your reporting this week included this sort of jarring data point that Texas has about 2.9 hospital beds per 1,000 people, less than one-fourth of the rate of South Korea. I mean, how ready is the state's healthcare system for, especially hospitals, for what is by all intents and purposes an expected, expected spike in coronavirus cases? Right. Well, how ready we'll be will certainly depend on what that spike looks like. Um, I, I, I spent much of uh, the past weekend talking to doctors and nurses and other workers who, and, you know, everybody has different concerns, right? But the general consensus was if we can miraculously keep the rate of infection low, if we can keep people isolating as much as they can, um, you know, restrict person to person spread of this virus as much as possible, then our current healthcare system um, can handle it. Uh, you know, the question is going to be can we actually do that? Um, hospitals, I think, are bracing for the possibility that um, there could be really widespread infection. Um, you'll note that uh, the number of the, the sort of rate of hospital beds per, per person. Uh, in Texas looks a lot like it does in Italy. And if you've been following the news out of Italy, the concern there is that um, at various emergency rooms, doctors have basically been faced with this horrific conundrum where they say, okay, maybe we're a hospital and we have 10 ventilators, but there are 15 patients who can't breathe. And so how do we as doctors prioritize who is going to get to use the machine to keep them breathing. Um, you know, it's, it's triage. It's something that doctors uh, and nurses are, are, are well aware of in catastrophic situations. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think that our healthcare system has ever um, been at risk of a catastrophic uh, scenario quite as um, large scale as this one. And so the message from healthcare providers on the ground um, from your nurses at, at these patients' bedside to the hospital administrators at the top has been, please, please do everything you can to keep the rate of infection low. Because if we don't do that, we simply do not have enough hospital beds to care for everybody if too many people get sick all at once. Yeah, I mean, I think that the idea of doctors making the excruciating decisions between who gets a ventilator and who doesn't is something that up to now, for you know, for better or for worse, and probably for worse, has felt kind of distant, right? Like we were, we saw this happening in other countries, and even though it was almost inevitable for it to get to the U.S., it it wasn't really something. I mean, the idea of like people talking about ventilators in hospitals was not even anywhere in the mainstream, but. I mean, as we sort of prepare for the wave that does hit hospitals, the idea of doctors making that decision 
is I feel like one of the most powerful images. I think when you when you think about how we can actually respond and, and you know quote unquote flatten the curve. Right. Like, I, yeah, right. it's horrifying. No, no healthcare provider wants to be in that position. No, and we as a society don't want to be in that position. But we know that it happens. We we tend to think about it in the context of like a horrific hurricane, Hurricane Katrina, a hospital losing power. You know doctors having to prioritize who gets what. Um, we are not used to thinking about it on such a massive scale um, for a disaster that we can't see. I mean, this is, you know, this is a microscopic virus. Um, but that is what's at stake here. And, you know, maybe I'm uh, overly optimistic, but I, I, you know, I want, I want the message here to be one of caution of, um, we can stop this, but it is going to take is going to require us to take extraordinary lengths um, to keep ourselves safe from infection and to you know prevent accidentally infecting our loved ones or people that we know who are who are maybe more vulnerable than we are. Um, right now, we're okay, but we cannot see the number of COVID nineteen cases skyrocket and expect that our healthcare system will be in. Um, a place where it can respond appropriately to that. Before our next one-on-one, we've got two more sponsors to go to. Episcopal Health Foundation. By providing millions of dollars in grants, working with congregations and community partners, and providing important research, see how the Episcopal Health Foundation is working to improve health, not just health care in Texas. More at episcopalhealth.org. And UT Press presents Leaving the Gay Place. Billy Lee Brammer and the Great Society by Tracy Doherty, now in paperback. The award-winning author traces the cultural upheavals of mid-century America through the life of Billy Lee Brammer, author of the classic political novel, The Gay Place. We're going to turn over to schools now. Aliyah, life has changed pretty significantly in the last week for public school children and their parents who are now facing the prospect that some schools won't return before the academic year's end. Let's start a bit generally. What's the sort of state of closures at this point? So almost all school districts in the state have closed. Um, that's, I think that's the latest data as of today. Um, and uh the ones that haven't closed are probably the the smaller rural ones. I think the urban and suburban ones have decided together that they were going to close because a lot of families have kids in one district, work in another. Um, so it just makes sense to be kind to those families and, and parents and make sure that they can have somewhere to keep their kids. Um, yeah, so you have millions of students who are out of school um, and staying home. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about the kids who or the parents who might live in one district, have kids in one or another, and the need for those to line up as they're sort of thinking through how to respond to this and what to Mm -hmm. do next. Yeah, I think that's part of the challenge for school superintendents. They're trying to make the right decision, but no right decision is going to be perfect for their communities. You're always going to have people you're inconveniencing or even more than inconveniencing um, when you close a school down. Sure. Well, so in in what was called an unprecedented move, Governor Greg Abbott announced on Monday that he would waive testing requirements for this year's STAR exam. So no standardized tests this year for the most part. But what does the remote instruction or online instruction that we've been hearing about look like? I mean, how how are we seeing school districts try to bridge 
the very real gap and, and very wide gaps in access to the internet and, techn- and technology between wealthier Texas families and the millions of children who are economically disadvantaged. I think it's something that district leaders are still in the process of figuring out. You have your districts that are way ahead. You, you know, I've talked to a bunch of students and parents who feel not at all concerned about it because their kids already were on Google Classroom and teachers were already posting assignments and parents could already see what they were doing. So they'll probably be fine, especially the ones that are sending Chromebooks home with their kids. Um, but then you have a whole nother set of districts. Um, I'm not sure which, I, I would assume that that's the, the majority of them that don't actually have the money to provide um, a device for every student to go home with. And you have students who go to those schools who just don't have, uh, have spotty internet at home, don't have a computer for each kid. You know, if you have five kids at home, do you have five iPads so they can all be working at the same time? Potentially not. Um, so I think, I think that's the struggle and school districts are trying to figure out, okay, does it actually make sense to put everything online? Should we also send home paper packets for kids um, and deliver those along with food or have them pick them up if they're coming for curbside food or meal pickup? Um, should we have them also pick up packets? Should we use our school buses to transport backpacks with resources as well as food to kids since they're not going to be delivering kids around since school is closed? People are trying to be creative with it. Um, I think you'll still have to see because spring break has been extended in a lot of districts. So they're using the time to figure out what they're going to do. Yeah, I mean, I remember just last week, which seems like 100 years ago, we were in the office talking about how you would likely see very different, you know, the baseline wasn't the same, even for school districts that were neighboring each other Mm -hmm. in the same cities, just because some are starting from a very different place in terms of resources for their kids. Yeah, I I talked to one kid um, yesterday, a 12-year-old who used to go to one school district in the Dallas area, and she got to take her Chromebook home every day. She only has a smartphone at home. She doesn't have a computer or anything, and she just lives with her mom. And now she's in a different district, and she doesn't get to take it home. She only has her smartphone. So she's been preparing to use that if they need to do assignments online. Yeah, that, that line really stuck out to me in, in that story mm-hmm. of yours where that was sort of her only option. Um, well, so we know that for lower income households in particular, the sort of indefinite closures also present childcare challenges and, you know, the reliable access to breakfast and lunch and the meals that you were talking about. You know, I say this as a former free and reduced lunch kid myself, you know, the idea of that going away all of a sudden for an indefinite amount of time seems like a, a huge thing for a lot of these families. What are you hearing from from parents when it comes to childcare and providing food? I mean, you you talked to some parents who didn't even know that the schools were still providing meals for pickup, right? Yeah, I think the hard part in all this is districts haven't figured out even how to get the information out to their communities. Um, you know, they're they're trying to, they just got the waivers to be able to offer food for pickup, but not everyone knows that those are available. And even if they know that they're available, not everyone has access to a car when the sites are open to be able to just go and, and pick the meals up or wait in whatever line it takes to um, to actually get access to the meals. Um, so I think you just have way more obstacles than you would think. Um, you know, if, if you're just thinking about this in the ideal way, it's not going to be ideal for a lot of families um, because of the, the lack of resources that they actually have. Sure. So what are the things that you are kind of 
looking for or trying to keep an eye on and monitor sort of beyond the initial scrambling to get this figured out and this sort of patchwork of responses, depending on where in the state you're at? You know, what are kind of the, the main things that you'll be keeping an eye out for in, in the coming weeks and if not months that this might go on? I think, you know, it, it'll be really interesting to see if um, as school districts figure out how to get creative, if there are any solutions that take off and, and other districts start adopting because it's the best way to get to all of their families. Um, I'll be watching about um, teacher pay and, and school finance right now. Uh, you know, I don't think school districts are worried about having their funding changed. Um, as far as I can see, uh, it seems like the state is really committed to making sure that they keep their funding up. But if they don't, then that means that, you know, staff might not get paid, especially hourly workers like custodians um, who we need right now to be, you know, cleaning the schools and um, to be doing work. But also if they're not uh, able to work the same number of hours, what is that going to mean for their take home pay? Um and I think that it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, if this goes through the summer. Um, you know, does that mean that the the food delivery sites will remain the same? Um, you know, if you aren't able to have things like summer school, what does that mean for for families who maybe were, um, you know, leaning on that to be able to find some way to get childcare since the, they're still going to have to work through the summer? Um, and it'll be it'll be different given that they had eight weeks potentially taking care of kids already before the summer break starts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the support system part of this is something I've been thinking about, you know, the, the custodians and, and folks who, even if schools close and they no longer have the sort of take-home pay that they had there, maybe have to find alternative work elsewhere. You know, obviously we don't know what that's going to look like given the situation of things and, and the amount of closures, but the idea of when you do come back, you might not have the support staff that you did before because some of them have had to move on by necessity. You know, it's not teachers waiting for schools to reopen, but rather custodians and bus drivers who have maybe have had to move on. Yes, definitely. I mean, I've talked to um, one uh, custodian in, in Austin ISD and even missing, you know, a day of work means that he might not be able to pay for his insurance, his health insurance premium. I think it's, you know, it, it's a really dire situation for people who are not salaried workers in schools. And it would really make sense if, if you came back to school, you know, once this, this crisis is over and you see people have moved on, I think that makes a lot of sense to expect if it continues as it, as it has. Um, but I think you do see school districts trying to figure out how to keep them paid. <laughs> so um, it might not be a crisis situation for them financially if school districts can figure that out. That's all we have for you today. If you have any questions about the state of coronavirus in Texas or the state's response, you can send them over to Tribcast at texastribune.org, and we'll try to get to them next week. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to the Austin Community Foundation, Entergy, the Episcopal Health Foundation, and UT Press, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Edgar, Aaliyah, and our producers Michael Ray and Regina, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening. You will never use. Do I have to talk you a little